Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3, and if you're new with us, new to our church, or new to this series, uh, this is week three of our study in Habakkuk, the final week of a series I call God in the Dark. And it's been such a beautiful thing, really, to kind of eavesdrop on this exchange between God and His prophet Habakkuk. We've seen the prophet, you know, kind of all over the place. We've seen him frustrated and disappointed and, and, and even it appears angry. And now we're going to see a bit, of, a bit of this progression of his faith. One of the things that Janine and I love about living in North Alabama are the sunsets. Of course, you know, we lived in Southern California for a long time and the sunsets are beautiful there too, especially as the rays of light kind of uh, fall over the Pacific Ocean. So it's beautiful stuff, but but there's nothing, it doesn't really compare to the sort of tapestry of colors that we see here. Let me give you just one example of a picture that someone in our church took. Just a beautiful picture, and you can see the depth and the colors and so on. And, and not unlike the beauty of the sunsets are the sunrises, which are also pretty breathtaking. Let me show you one of those. Um, well, as the sun, just like the sun as it sort of creeps up and peaks over the horizon, and you start to see more and more of its glory, we're going to see Habakkuk's faith becoming more visible and more evident as he kind of wrestles with God. And so Habakkuk 3 is, is Habakkuk's prayer as he's had a chance to process both what he has brought to the Lord and also what the Lord has said uh, in return. Uh, last week we saw that the central message of this entire book is expressed in chapter 2, and that is, the righteous shall live by faith. And I said to you that living by faith not, believes not just believing in God, because a lot of people believe in God, but it means believing God, His promises, His plan, and in particular, the promise of the coming one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, who would bring salvation uh, to the earth. Well, of course, it brings some questions what does that actually look like on a Tuesday when I'm struggling? What does it look like on a Wednesday when I'm mad at my kids? What does it look like on a Friday when I'm, I'm just frustrated or exhausted? What does it mean to live by faith? Well, we're going to see by way of Habakkuk's illustration what this means. And I'm, I'm kind of calling this three thought patterns of those who live by faith. So what does it mean, very practically speaking, to live by faith? Let's look at chapter 3 together. Let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Here reads the word of the Lord. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy." Now, I want to pause there because this, this demands some explanation, doesn't it? The, he says, uh, Habakkuk says, this is a prayer according to Shigianoth. And we read that and we say, who in the world is that? What does that mean? Well, Shigianoth is not a person. This was not uh, Shaggy and Scooby's cousin. Shigianoth is actually, it's, it, no one really knows what it is specifically. It's kind of an obscure Hebrew word. But what it seems to refer to is a musical directive. In other words, a specific way that a, a Hebrew psalm or song is to be sung. Uh, in fact, uh, we see even at the very end of this chapter, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, it ends by saying, to the choir master with stringed instruments. See, Habakkuk chapter 3 is a, it's a song. It is a psalm of lament. And we've spent 
uh, some time over the last couple of weeks looking at laments and explaining what they are. A lament is a, is a complaint to God uh, based on experienced or observed suffering in which the prayer goes and asks God to intercede on the sufferer's behalf. And so this is a song of mourning. This is a song of lament. In fact, it actually parallels Psalm 7, the biblical Psalm 7 uh, by David, which is also called a Shigianoth. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, it shows us that, that the song of lament, these songs of lament were used by God's people throughout the ages. Uh, they were used as a way to express disappointment, concern, anxiety, fear, anger, whatever it is. And we see that they are in the biblical Psalms. They're used throughout the ages as a way for God's people to kind of navigate the disappointment, the suffering and pain that they're going through. And, and here in Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, uh, we have this example of a song of lament that was used by God's people. And Habakkuk be- begins by saying, God, I've heard of your fame and your great works. It's been made known to me. It's been passed down generation to generation. I've been made aware of it. I know what you've done in the past, but he says, we need your help right now. We need your help now. That phrase, in the midst of years, which is repeated twice, uh, means in the time that we're in. It could also be translated, in these years. He's saying, God, we need you today. We need you in our land. We need you in this generation. There's a sense of urgency. This is a, this is a desperate prayer that God's people have sung together for millennia. And then Habakkuk says, and this is so rich, in wrath remember mercy. See, God has already told Habakkuk all that's in store for the nation of Judah. He said, the bloodthirsty Babylonians will come, they will encroach, they will overtake your land. And of course, Habakkuk is overwhelmed by this. And Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, he's actually saying this because he knows God to be a merciful God. He understands that God is a merciful God. Yes, He is a God of wrath, and and certainly He is a God of judgment. Haven't we seen that already? But He's also a God of mercy. This was the covenant characteristic of Yahweh that that would make Israel's restoration possible. And I wonder if Habakkuk had in mind the writing of a prophet who ministered some hundred years before him, the prophet Micah. And I wonder if even as Habakkuk is crying out in prayer to God, if he is thinking about or has in the back of his mind the words of Micah. In Micah 7, we read this. Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. How encouraging is that? Micah, and here Habakkuk does the same thing, pleads with God to show mercy because he knows that God is a God who is merciful, who has revealed Himself as a merciful God. Habakkuk's prayer is an appeal, really, to the very character of God. And this is, this is a key aspect to living by faith. Here's our first point. Living by faith means trusting God to be faithful to His character. 
you know, there are plenty of questions that pop up in our lives that we, we don't have answers to, and the Bible doesn't specifically address. And some of these are very important questions. Some of these are questions that actually plague us. I think the, the question that I've been asked most often throughout my ministry, and it's actually, there's not even a close second, over the years has been what happens to babies when they die. You can imagine, of course, this is a critical question. This is such an important question, and, but the Bible doesn't really answer it. I mean, some people go to this obscure verse toward the end of Jonah, and some people go to 1 Samuel, they say, that, but, but, but the Bible doesn't really answer it. So what do we do with questions that the Bible doesn't answer? Well, the only thing we can do is appeal to the very character of God. And say like Abraham did in Genesis 18, as he's reflecting on all these things that are going on, he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Of course, this is a rhetorical question. Abraham believes, because of the character of God, that there are certain things that he can expect from God. And I think in those areas of mystery, the only thing, that's the only thing we can do. We can trust in the character of God, the way that He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. Randy Alcorn's a well-known author, wrote a book called Heaven. You've probably seen it. It's got, these, it's got like 30, three or four page uh, chapters. And it's a very good book. If you want to know, if you're curious about what's going to be next, I think there's some really good stuff in there. Part of it is, I don't know, I would say Alcorn's imagination. In other words, he, he answers some questions that we can't say definitively, but it's a beautiful book. Well, he's an analytical guy, much like many of you are and like I am. We, we want to have things buttoned up. We want to know the answers. We want to have things uh, in an outline and, and so on. And he says that one of the things that it was most difficult for him to learn from God was to trust in the areas where there aren't answers. In fact, uh, I love what he says in, in one of his books. He says this, Sometimes we make the foolish assumption that our Heavenly Father has no right to insist that we trust Him unless He makes His infinite wisdom completely understandable to us. What we call the problem of evil is often the problem of our finite and fallen understanding. It was the hardest lesson I'd ever had to learn, he says. In our times of suffering, God doesn't give us answers as much as He gives Himself. And this is, we see, again, think about that image of the sun rising up over the horizon. We're seeing Habakkuk's faith grow. We're seeing the progression of his trust expand. And it's interesting, by the way, how often we see the same thing in the biblical Psalms throughout the Psalms. The psalmist will express a confidence that God will act a certain way. Why? Because God himself is a certain way. He says, God, I know you will be faithful to your people because you are a faithful God. Full of that, that Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant faithfulness, loving kindness. He says, God, I know that you'll be patient with us because you are a patient God. God, I know that you'll be merciful because you are a merciful God. And this is where Habakkuk was. He's appealing to the character of God. He says, God, I've been told all these things about you from generation to generation, about how you are and who you are, and yes, I believe them. I've heard the stories of your power as they've been passed down generation to generation. But we need you now, God. We need you to show yourself strong now, God. We understand that you're going to bring about judgment, and and we dare not say that we don't deserve it. We know we've been idolatrous and your people have gone astray, but in your wrath show mercy because you are a merciful God. What are those attributes of God, those characteristics of God that are most encouraging to you 
when you find yourself with questions you can't answer, you find yourself in situations you don't know how to respond or what to do. Maybe, maybe it's the sovereignty of God and you trust that you know that God is in control of it all and no one can thwart His plan. No one sneaks up on God. No one surprises God. Maybe for you it's the grace of God. And like David, you say, God, my, my sin is ever before you, but you, you are so comforted by the grace of God. For me personally, I'm so heartened and encouraged by the patience of God who says himself that he is long-suffering because I know he's been very long-suffering with me in my own times of faithlessness, in my own arrogance, in my own fear, my own doubts. I praise God for his patience. What are those characteristics that you bring to mind that encourage your soul? As we continue in Habakkuk's prayer and I read the next section, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the great exodus, okay? The, the God's great deliverance of His people. I want, you, I want you to try to pick out some of those references to that historic event. Because in this prayer, Habakkuk is going to remember and celebrate God's previous redemption. So let me just, let me read through uh, 3 through 15. And I'll stop occasionally to point some of those out. Uh, verse 3 says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. These are these are two locations in the Sinai Desert, and they actually marked, you remember when God delivered Egypt or get, delivered Israel from the Egyptians, they went out into Sinai, and these two, these two locations actually marked the boundaries of that journey. Uh, look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Now, what do you think this is a reference to? It's the brightness of God's glory. God who would lead Israel through the desert, He would lead them by a, a vision of Him, by a cloud and a pillar of, uh, and, and the, the fire and, and so on. And this would be their shelter, it would be their guidance, it would be their protection. It was bright like the light. Uh, verse 5, before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. Habakkuk here, of course, calls to mind the great plagues that God would use to free His own people, to frustrate the plans of Pharaoh and to gain the release of his people. Uh, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and, sh and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. When did the mountains shake? When God delivered his law to Moses, right? We're, we're told that the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed and the mountains shook with smoke. Uh, let's continue here. He says, uh, I, I saw, verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? Now, what does this bring to mind? Of course, the people of Israel escaping through the dry land while the Egyptians pursued in anger. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. What a beautiful picture. Even the, mount, even the seas are, are lifting their hands in worship of the sovereign God. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the, through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. 
You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And look at this verse. You crushed the head of the wicked, laying him bare from, th- from thigh to neck. We went on vacation this last summer to Orange Beach, and uh, there was a, a, de- a, a night, really, where the thunderstorms were terrible. And the next morning, we had a warning. I think it was started out, the, there was a red flag. You couldn't go in the water. Then the flag was yellow. And so we, we got in the water. The waves were much choppier than normal. They were higher. They were rougher than normal, uh, which to us made it more fun, but it also made it more dangerous. Well, my uh, 70-something-year-old uh, father-in-law went out, and he, was, he, was, he walked in the water a little, little higher than his waist, and he got absolutely leveled by this wave. Just, I mean, he went sort of legs up, just totally crashed down, and then he kind of hobbled out. Uh, now, this was toward the end of our trip, thankfully, because the rest of the trip, uh, he kind of made us his servants. But um, we had to bring him stuff, take stuff to his room. I, I thought I'd gone from his son-in-law to his server. Just everything, every need, and you know, we were at his beck and call. But then he realized when he got back home, he went to the doctor, he actually sustained three hernias. So he got three hernias from that crashing wave. Now that's just a small wave in, in, uh, at Orange Beach. Imagine, imagine a sea that's been parted with walls at each stop, at side that stand hundreds of feet. And when those walls crashed, imagine the tidal wave and what would happen to those people who were caught in them. Well, here's what would happen. They were laid bare from thigh to neck. The references to the Exodus just continue here by Habakkuk. Look at uh, verse 14. You pierced with arrow, his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. One reference after another to this great, historic, cataclysmic Exodus event. What is Habakkuk doing in this prayer? He is remembering and reflecting on the way God saved His people in the past. And through those reflections, he finds hope for his own future. This is another aspect of living by faith. Here's our second point. Living by faith means allowing our past experience of salvation to create a present expectation of deliverance. In other words, we, we, we look at the way God has saved us. And, I, and I'll spell that out more in just a minute. But we think about the way that God has redeemed us and where we came from when God got a hold of us. And we think about our salvation, and it gives us hope for the future, because every Christian has actually gone through his or her own exodus event. We have been, we have been freed from slavery. We have been delivered from slavery. Now, of course, it wasn't slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, but it was slavery to sin and Satan and death and the flesh. See, as believers, we have gone through this incredible exodus by God's miraculous power, by His right hand, and when God looks at the world, He only sees two types of people. There are only two types of people in God that, in terms of what, what God is concerned about ultimately. It's not those who go to church and those who don't. This is not ultimately the, the, what differentiates. It's not those who are members of a church and who, who aren't. I hear all the time people, of course, we live in the South, the Bible Belt, and we people, well, I've been a member of this church for years, and they haven't been in years. It's not people who are members and who aren't. It's not, those, it's not even those who, are ba- who have been baptized and who haven't, right, with apologies to our Lutheran brothers. This is the way they see things. 
It's not those who are black and those who are white, those who are male, those who are female, those who are educated, uneducated, whatever it is. When God sees people, He sees one of two things. This person is either alive in Christ, that is to say spiritually alive, or dead in sin. Spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Now, of course, God sees, He notices all those other things. He recognizes those, those other differences. But the only distinction that matters to God in the end is those, who are, is those who are alive in Christ, those who have trusted and believed on His Son, and those who are dead in sin. You're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. And you can't be kind of alive. You're not either sort of kind of alive, you're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. And spiritual death is not something we suffer because of something we do. The Bible makes it clear every single person is actually born spiritually dead. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So to be a child, to be a child of wrath means to be destined for God's, God's uh, immediate and future outpouring of righteous anger. And of course, that's not good. That's very, very bad. And on top of that, those who are dead in sin along with being, of course, dead and having as their father the devil, they're enslaved to the flesh. And so the flesh is not just our physical bodies, but it's, uh, it's the, the sinful nature, as it were, which is housed in these unglorified bodies. Human nature. Paul tells us the desires of the flesh are greed, lust, envy, sexual immorality, disobedience, idolatry, fits of anger, divisiveness, and things like that. So every person who comes into the world enters the world spiritually dead, I guess theologically we could say in Adam, an object of God's wrath, an enemy of God, a servant of the devil, and an active agent in disobedience and rebellion. Now I have to ask the question, does anybody really believe that? And the reason I say that is because every talk show... And uh, every magazine and, and, and a lot of preachers will hear, no, we're actually all really good people at the core. And all we need to do is sort of tap into that inner goodness and, and that inner beauty and that inner strength, you know. That's really the secret. And so we hear that all the time, and we're, we're, I think we're inclined to believe that, that we're all really good people. How many times have you heard someone say about a person who has nothing to do with God, no spiritual interest, they say, yeah, but, but he's really a good person. I met with a man some 17 years ago, a man who was in his early 60s, who informed me that his uh, 26-year-old daughter, who was married, was being physically beaten and abused by her husband. He came to me. I said, I, he said, I was with my daughter last night, and I saw the marks on her neck where her husband had thrown her to the ground. He said, I, I, I don't have any idea what to do. And I, I gave him some pastoral counsel on, on not just things that he should do, but things that he must do. And I was shocked when he said to me about his son-in-law, who wants nothing to do with the things of God. He said, when I, I, I said to him, you know, what he needed to do, he said about his son-in-law, well, but you have to understand, he's really a good person. I said, no, he's not a good person. And what makes him a bad person is not just that he hits your daughter, although that makes him a coward and an abuser, but what makes him a really bad person is that he's dead in sin. He's an enemy of God. He is following the desires of, his fle of the flesh. He wants nothing to do with God. 
So let's not say he's a good person because he's not. Of course, he's really not that much different than we are. We may not be abusers, but we too come into this world separated from God, at odds with God, and in desperate need of God's grace. And I also said to this guy, it doesn't mean that your son-in-law is beyond the reach of God's grace. Of course, that's not true. But he's not a good person. He needs to be rescued and delivered by this holy God. But here's the beautiful news. And this is why two of the greatest words in all the Scripture are, but God, but God. God does bring people to saving faith. He does take people who are spiritually dead, and He works by His Spirit, usually through the proclamation of the gospel, you know, even the church's proclamation of the gospel. He works to bring those people who are lost, who are God's enemies, who are following their, fa- their father, Satan, and He brings them to repentant faith. And he brings them to a place of brokenness. He brings them to a place where they actually see and they appreciate and they recognize the holiness of God. And they then understand their own sinfulness and this infinite chasm that exists between them and God. And they turn to Jesus Christ and they trust in his cross work and God makes them new. And God forgives them of every sin they've ever committed. And God makes them His very own child that He deeply loves and cares for. Of course, this is your story if you are in Christ. This is your story. If you've trusted in Christ, this is because God has worked in you by His Spirit. He sent His Son to live for you, to die for you, to be raised to new life for you, so that His righteousness would become yours by faith. And now you are free from the law. In other words, the law can no longer condemn you. You are free from sin. That doesn't mean you'll never sin, but sin is no longer your master. And you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry about condemnation. You never, ever have to worry about God's wrath. Because God poured it all on the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, this is your story. This is the way that God has redeemed you. This is the way that God has miraculously made you new. And when you think about that, the lengths to which God went to save you, it should inspire this real palpable hope in the future. I love what New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says. He says, The gravity of our previous condition serves to magnify the wonder of God's mercy. The past is recalled not because the emphasis falls on it, but in order to draw attention to God's mighty action in Christ. And again, this is where Habakkuk is, right? This is, where, this is why his faith is being strengthened, and, and, and we're seeing it come uh, to full circle here. When we remember what God has done to save us in Christ, it, good, it should inspire within us a great confidence of his future plans for us. Even when things look bleak, even when we have years like 2020, we don't know what's around the corner, even when we, uh, we, the world seems like it's upside down. This is, by the way, what inspired the Apostle Paul in all the, tr- the troubles and the, str- the st- uh, struggles he's going through to actually say, if he didn't spare his own son for us, will he not give us all things? This is where his hope uh, was found. Even when your world seems like it's unraveling and you don't know what's next, which I know is the case for many of us. We look at how God saved us 
how he delivered us, and that gives us confidence that he will do it again and again and again. Habakkuk was in a really bad way. I mean, he knows. He is very well aware of the impending invasion by the Babylonians, and God has already said to them, these are a bloodthirsty group, and they love violence. And he knew this was coming. He knew that violence was on the way. He saw the violence and the evil and the injustice all around him, particularly against the people of God, but he remembered what God had done in the past. In saving God's people from slavery to the Egyptians, and that gave him hope for the future. And not only that, it led him to worship. Look at verses 16 through 19. He says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now here we see a complaining prophet transformed into a rejoicing prophet. He is now persuaded that not only can God save, but He will save. In fact, we see he's waiting, verse 16, for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, yeah, he knows judgment is coming to them. He knows that judgment will come, but he knows that after judgment... There will be deliverance. And you see the progression here. Verses 16 and 17 are very bleak. Habakkuk says, my body trembles. The Hebrew word there is literally, my bowels. My bowels tremble. This is a disgusting thought, isn't it? Right? How graphic. Have you ever been to Taco Bell? You know what he's talking about. He said, I'm all torn up inside. I can't even stand up straight. I'm so weak. I'm miserable. He says, rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. These are vivid images of a man who is totally undone. And I made that joke in the first service. Nobody, I must have been a Taco Bell manager or something. People just looked at me angrily. But the point is, look, he's like, I can't do this anymore. I don't even have strength in my legs to stand. Even my bones feel like they're decaying. Here's a man who cannot stand under the weight of what is coming. What is he saying? He's saying, God, you have taken every ounce of my strength. You have taken any sort of modicum of of self-assuredness, any sort of thought, even a fleeting thought that I can do this on my own. You've absolutely laid me bare. But he says, but now I see. Now I see how faithful and satisfying you truly are. You know that Christianity is not a religion for strong people. You know it's actually a faith faith for the weak. Not the independent, the dependent. I mentioned to you last week, uh, J.I. Packer and his story, a little boy running out of a school being bullied, and he runs out into a busy street. He gets hit, hit by a bread truck, miraculously saved. Um, 
But from that, he would sit down and start writing and eventually write Knowing God, this book that has impacted people all over the globe, including you know, most of your pastors here. And I mentioned that last week. I mentioned that, that, that book, Knowing God. There's another book that he wrote much later in life, in fact, shortly before he died. It's a little gray book. It's about 90 pages called Weakness is the Way. And in this book, he says that the way of the Christian life is a way of weakness. In fact, didn't we just sing, Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, your strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. And so J.I. Packer talks about in this book how, how the way of the Christian life is the way of weakness. I quoted that book one time in a sermon probably 10 or 11 years ago. And, and no sooner has I, had, had the last song been sung and we did the benediction, this guy stormed up to me, a formal naval, uh, former naval officer, and he said, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong there. He said, I think that God calls us to be strong. I mean, after all, all those passages in the Old Testament were told, be strong and courageous. He said, I don't think the Christian life is a life of weakness. I said, what do you read after God says be strong and courageous? What do you read after God says be strong? Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Be strong in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. These passages are not a call to individual or personal strength, but a plea toward a greater, more fearless dependence on God. Here's what Packer writes in that little book I mentioned. The truth is that in many respects, and certainly spiritual matters, we are all weak and inadequate, and we need to face it. Sin, which disrupts all relationships, has disabled us across the board we need to be aware of our limitations and to let this awareness work in us humility and self-distrust and a realization of our own helplessness, of helplessness on our own. Only when we are broken will we see our need for a Savior. Only when we really understand our own weakness when we recognize, I, I can't do anything to save myself. What can I possibly bring to a holy God that would actually endear myself to Him? I have nothing. Only when we recognize our own weakness will we run to Jesus and say, Jesus paid it all. There's a young mom and lived outside of Colorado Springs. Four little kids under 10. And she realized... Something was going on with her body. She went into the doctor and found that she had breast cancer. And it was a very aggressive sort. She, uh, she gained, I don't want to say fame's not the right word, but gained a bit of a following through this blog she used to write called Mundane Faithfulness. And she went in, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, went through all the treatments, lost her hair, got really skinny and, and weak and, and, and pale, and just really uh, went through a, a bad way. And um, some of you are saying, that's how you look. Um, well, but she, she was really sick. and um, So she went through all this stuff, and, and it was just a horrible experience. And through that, she actually, the cancer was defeated. She was in remission. But sadly, it was about a year and a half later, the cancer, and this happened, you, know, you see this happen, right? It came back with a vengeance. And ended up, she only had a few months to live. In those few months, she sort of kept a journal of her, 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 uh, her dying days, and it was so beautiful. One of the things she wrote, which was so good about her whole experience of dying, was this. It is strength that keeps God at a distance. When strength is taken, removed, and shaken, we beg for God to be with us. Do we see the weakness of strength? 
The sovereignty of God and suffering is a kindness to keep us utterly dependent in a way our strength simply fails us. We love strength. We pet it. We live for it. When it is gone, we question the goodness of God. But as I have seen in my own story, the taking of strength is His grace, a huge grace to draw me to Jesus. Habakkuk has been brought by God to a place of complete helplessness, a place where he has no ability of his own, utter weakness, and it's only there that he looks up to God and finds this remarkable hope in the future. Here's our final point as it relates to living by faith. Living by faith means despairing of our own strength and placing all of our hope in God's salvation. You know, sometimes the Bible, the Bible uses the word salvation. Uh, there's, a, of course, a Hebrew word for it in the Old Testament, Greek word for it in the New Testament. It uses it for different things, to mean different things. Sometimes salvation is actually deliverance from a dangerous situation, uh, a sort of precarious uh, situation where, where danger is looming. Sometimes salvation is a reference to healing from sickness. Sometimes it is a, a sort of a supernatural protection. But most often, especially in the New Testament, salvation is a reference to this deliverance from sin and death, from the consequences of sin and death, which include separation from God. Well, here, it's pretty fascinating. Habakkuk has all of this in mind, all of it. So this is a full, big-picture understanding. The salvation he refers to is everything God has to offer, all of it. The wholeness of soul, we might say, that comes from being united to God. Habakkuk says, God makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. I don't, I don't personally do any hunting. I'm not, I'm not against it. I just, just, I'm not a hunter. Ever since my stepdad took me uh, squirrel hunting in sub-zero weather, I, I kind of swore it off forever. Um, but we have some hunters here, and we have some deer hunters, and I have seen enough deer to know that deer are kind of light-footed. You know, you can almost say at times they kind of bounce along. And because of that, they're, they're very sure-footed. They can actually ascend to places that other animals can't, like they can go places where a cow could never go, right? Because they're sure-footed, they're light, they're, they're agile, and so on. Um, well, what, what Habakkuk is saying here is, He says, God makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. In other words, He takes me places that I can only go by His guidance and by His strength. The high places are the place to be. The high places where you can see it all. You know, somebody builds a new home. They build a home in North Carolina or Southern California or some sort of beach area. They want to build it on the high place. That's the safe place. You know, the high places where you can see the enemy coming. The high places where you have this panoramic view of everything out there and your perspective is really broadened. And he says, in my weakness and in my suffering and in my anxiety and in my fear, God takes me to a place where I can see, where I can see better the whole picture, where I can go where only He can lead me. What he's saying is this is where God takes us in order to show the sufficiency of life in Him. And the one who lives by faith is the one who despairs of their own strength, but places all of his or her hope in God's salvation. 
To live by faith means we've seen. Going in reverse, it means, it means despairing of our own strength and placing all of our faith in God's salvation. It means looking back and remembering God's work of salvation in the past in such a way that it creates within us a real sense of hopefulness and optimism and expectation of God's deliverance in the future. And it means trusting that God will be faithful to His character. And I say that's, that's what it means to live by faith. And so I ask the question, are you living by faith in the way that the Scriptures prescribe? Have you come to a point where you're despairing of your own strength and you know if you have any hope of salvation at all, it's only going to be by God's deliverance, by a miracle at the hand of God. Do you frequently look back and see and reflect on what God has done for you in salvation? And does that inspire within you, like Habakkuk, like the Apostle Paul, like the New Testament writers, like the prophets of old, does it inspire within you an expectation of God's faithfulness in the future? And when you think about those areas in life that you just don't have answers to, you don't know what to do, do you appeal to the very character of God? And say, even though, God, you've not given me an answer, you've not told me what's going to happen, you've given me yourself, you have revealed yourself to me. This is the life of faith. May God give us the grace to live that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your power. We thank you that as we look back on the exodus that we have experienced, you, as you have sovereignly and supernaturally delivered us from our own state of spiritual death and sin and enslavement. Father, as we look at those, the miraculous way you've delivered us, only then can we sing, it is well with my soul. When we don't understand the unevenness of this life and we, we suffer loss, we don't know the whys, we don't know the whens. We don't know what's in store. We think back at your character and your faithfulness and your salvation, even amid our utter weakness. In fact, in spite of our weakness, you show yourself strong. And in that, we can praise you and our souls can find rest. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.